Hello, and welcome back to the Startup from Scratch podcast. Uh, this is your co-host, Kennedy, and of course, I have Myrna with me as well today. Um, we're super excited because we're going to be talking about uh, launching again today. Yeah. So today we're going to talk to Ian Usiri, who happens to be a great friend as well. Um, so excited to have him here. Uh, but yeah, like Kennedy said, we're going to be talking about launching again. What does that even mean? Um, so in our last episode, we talked to Avi about uh, interpreting pain. So uh, when things um, kind of go awry in your startup or, or company and, and you don't understand why people are not buying your product or using your service, uh, how do you interpret that pain and then uh, kind of go back to the drawing board, work on your product or service and, and launch again. Uh, so today we're going to be talking to Ian about that um, and just a quick intro about Ian before I hand it over to him again. Ian is uh, a great friend and an even more incredible founder. Um, and I think probably one of um, the best CEOs I've seen. Um, I think he really represents what it takes to be an amazing leader. Uh, when I think of, you know, low ego, high EQ, I think of Ian. And I'm always really impressed with how he handles uh, his team and, and, and how he leads. Uh, so without any further ado, um, welcome to our podcast, Ian. Hi. Thank you so much. Hi. Uh, yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about you uh, for our listeners who don't know you as well as as I do. And uh, tell us a little bit more about Armani and, and what you're building and where you are. Yeah. Um, where do I start? So I'm a second time founder. Um, I Armani is uh, my second startup. My first startup was called Verbatim and it was actually in the uh, social media space. I started that with um, a couple of friends uh, while in college, so about five years ago. And after college, I went and worked at Salesforce for two years as a product manager. Um, and in that time, I called up my brother and we said, you know, we have to start up again. Uh, and this time we want to do it uh, at home. So I'm from Tanzania. And so we both decided to quit our jobs, move halfway across the world and uh, enter the startup journey. And this was about a year ago. And so, um, yeah. yeah, we're still in the grind right now. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember the weekend when you left. I was very sad. Uh, <laughs> so, and, I, and I can't believe it's been a year. Um, yeah. But uh, tell tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, what you went back home to build. Yeah. Um, yeah. Honestly, when I moved back, when Calvin and I moved back, we weren't quite sure, and we liked it that way uh, because we really wanted to make sure we're solving a real problem on the ground. Um, I have, you know, I had this hypothesis and I, I think it's kind of true is that there's a lot of kids, um, coming from the West with all these amazing skills, right? You went to, you know, some good school in America, some good school in the UK. And then you're like, I want to move to an emerging market like, like Tanzania or Kenya, um, and, and, you know, and build a solution. And I want to take a solution that's in the U S and take it to those markets. So one great example is like Jumia which is wants to be the Amazon for Africa. And so you see all these smart people move back and they're like, I'm going to build the Amazon for Africa. And you know what? You know, I don't know if Africans really needed um, an Amazon. You've seen Jumia have, you know, a few troubles uh, over the mm -hmm. past two years. Um, so when we moved back, we came, you know, without uh, an idea. We said we really want to solve a real problem for people on the ground. Um, and I love how this uh, episode, you know, it's called Launch Again because 
launching and relaunching has basically been what we've been doing for the past year um, and mm. just continuously learning um, and trying to be as intellectually humble as possible, which was just something that I actually wanted to, to underscore doubly, triply, um, uh, which is like it's intellectual like humility that has allowed us to evolve. We have, we're, we're not there yet, um, but it's really what we feel is our competitive advantage um, being on the ground, just like questioning every assumption, allowing our, our users and people on the ground to tell us how things should be rather than us saying how things should be coming from this higher place, you know? Um, yeah. So we were iterating. So we've, we've been uh, in the informal retail space <clears throat> over this past year, just trying to figure out where we should fit in. Um, so initially what we were doing was we're trying to connect suppliers, um, connect distributors and merchants using an online platform. And so you would see merchants ordering on our platform, the mm -hmm. distributors would receive that order, and then we would provide a logistic solution underneath to deliver that product. Um, and you know, we launched that in like two months or so last year. Uh, we actually got some customers with that, but the unit economics weren't working well. Um, and so, because logistics is essentially what we were charging for, and so it's the, it's the lowest value part of that value chain. Um, and it just didn't make a lot of financial sense. And so we sort of evolved from that. Uh, and we were like, okay, we need a larger percentage of the share of the products that we're moving. And so we were like, okay, we'll become the distributor. So you become the distributor, mm -hmm. which means now we have a warehouse. Uh, it means now we have salespeople and we're, we're leveraging vehicles. And that worked for us for a while. Um, mm -hmm. And then we learned that you don't, uh, one, the margins for distributors are actually incredibly thin. Um, and there are a lot of uh, uh, reasons why in these types of markets, the margins are, are so thin for distributors. And when I say by thin, I'm talking about like 15 to eight and 10%. Um, and we can dive into that if you'd like. Um, but also like logistics um, in emerging markets in, in Tanzania and in Africa is just terrible. I actually have a whole, uh, after experiencing it, I have a whole complex about how like logistics is just a bad business in general. And if you include that in your, uh, uh, in your startup, you're, you're asking for trouble. Um, and mm -hmm. so uh, my brother and I got into YC with this company that did logistics and was distributing to, by the end of YC, about 400 merchants. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, you know the, the sages at YC were telling us from day one, I remember the, the conversation I had with Michael Seibel, uh, uh, when he's like, hey, get rid of get rid of that of the logistics part of your business. Um, and by the end of YC's, when finally we were like, you know what, this doesn't make sense. Let's get rid of it. So what is Ramani today? It's evolved kind of twice over the past um, two, three months. But what it is, is basically an integrated point of sale service for distributors in emerging markets. Um, yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, why why don't you explain that to us a little a little bit more? I don't I don't know if I can explain that to like a friend and I want to be able to. Right. right. Um so right now, um let's say you're a distributor. How does uh, how do sales work? So you have traveling salesmen essentially in our market. So what happens is let's say you're selling Coca-Cola. Um what what you would do is in the morning, uh you have a truck um and you fill that truck with all this inventory, with all these crates of soda. And then you have a route. Um, and on that route, of course, there are all these outlets that you're gonna visit. And you go visit from outlet to outlet and you start making uh, sales. So you, you visit um, you know, Mama Juma and you say, Mama, 
um, uh, do you have uh, uh, do you have an order for me today? Um, are you running low on stock? And then she tells you uh, yes or no. Um, and basically you keep going down the line and you try to sell as much as you can for that day. You have no visibility as to where there's demand. I mean, maybe you have, you form some relationship with some merchants and so maybe you can call them ahead of time. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's essentially sort of like a free for all type of uh, distribution system. And so what Romani does is we say, okay, um, that salesperson, um, we want to capture their sales data um uh, as they're making the sale not just for to monitor and make sure that they're doing they're doing what they're saying they're doing but also to capture um that transaction information and produce receipts that are actually sent to the government which is what a lot of these distributors have to do today so today they walk around with these mm. big bulky machines called efd machines which are essentially cash registered they're essentially mm. cash registers they're essentially government sanctioned uh cash registers um and what we're trying to do is we're trying to replace that cash register with a simple, elegant app that these salespeople can uh, walk around with. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, I, I actually have, so you had kind of alluded to this earlier, but I, I have a question about how you've, um, I've, I've like heard from like uh, our interactions, you know, you pivoting multiple times, but uh, I've wanted to ask about how you've kind of guided your team through um, kind of like your ramp downs and like reassessing things to like ramping back up and launching again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's you know, a really difficult challenge and I actually talked to a lot of founders about this. I think going through my first startup helped me uh, learn a lot about the emotional journey that my teammates and co-founders will go through as we decide to pivot, as we carry out that pivot, and as we launch again. Um, and so I've, you know, been really focused on um, how I present uh, those ideas to uh, my teammates, primarily my brother, um, how we make the decision to pivot, um, how we think about what got us here. And then you sort of like and sort of executing that um, uh, uh, pivot going forward. Um, I think the way I think about you know pivots uh, first is everybody sort of has to buy in, um, and they have to buy in in a way that um, it's not any one person's fault. It's just surfaced by the data, and the data and the market and the customers are what demand that you have to change. Uh, and the reason why it can't be any one person's fault, especially you as the CEO, is because you want to go through a pivot and have them maintain trust in you, right? Especially when you're talking about your third and your fourth and your uh, fifth pivots. So when I think that there's something wrong when I've been running uh, an experiment for a little while and not really getting uh, results, and that's another challenge, just how long is long enough for an experiment? Um, typically, I bring my team together and I try to highlight um, the key data points, the key market feedback that's telling us that we're not really going in the right direction. Um, and then uh, typically it's a process because they have to engage with that. They have to pro they have to, you know, uh, sit through the information and kind of, you know, you have to mourn all those hours you spent uh, building a product that nobody wants to use. And that's really, really difficult, especially for your engineers. Um, and then, and so they have to come to that conclusion also for themselves. Um, and then once you reach that point, then you have to sort of, um, I think as a founder, present um, 
sort of a, this a, a new north star that's exciting. Um, everyone knows you have to change, but you can't sort of just sit there. In my opinion. Um, and then be like, okay, I don't know what to do next. You have to sort of already have a North Star and say, you know, this didn't make sense, but here's where we're going to go. And then you have to say, why was our previous experience valuable uh, to get us where we need to go? So you have to articulate to those people that you didn't waste your time. You, that was an investment. It was a painful investment, but it was an investment to get us where we need to go. And then double down and say, even where we're, uh, and then make sure they understand that pivoting is a natural part of the journey so that you might have to pivot again. And as long as you know all those parts are understood, um, at least I've seen in, in this new startup, um, uh, people get re-energized, get reinvigorated, and it doesn't undermine um, uh, uh, sort of uh, their trust in you particularly um, going forward. So I think it's, so critical. I completely agree with how to, how you go about thinking about getting your team on board with any changes mm -hmm. that you're going to make. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a really critical part of that is understanding what each, especially in the very early stages when it's a small team, what really motivates each person as an individual in their life mm -hmm. in general, and how then these changes to the company are going to potentially impact their founder passion fit for the company. Right. Uh, I think what's a really interesting challenge that you also have navigated is how you navigate your customers through that journey as well, where you're changing right. the service offering um, right. and you don't want them to feel like you're decreasing the service or that you're taking away something that you told them was a value add. Uh, but for example, you don't want to continue to be involved in the logistics. So I'd love to hear how, how you navigate the, the customer transition as well as uh, while simultaneously managing this internal uh, transition right. for the team. Right. Um, uh, before I answer that, can I, can I loop back a little bit, um, uh, if that's okay, uh, and add a little something yeah, of course. Um, to uh, what I was saying before, um, and it's sort of something in evolution my brother and I have sort of come to, after, especially after being part of YC and seeing how many companies pivot, you know, um, you know, I've seen other founders and maybe I felt this initially about the value of an idea. How important is that idea? You have this brilliant idea. And I think when you think of a, of a company as sort of like implementing an idea, um, I think you set yourself a single idea or this like, you know, single vision. I think you might um, set yourself up for a lot of pain when you have to change, because if people are, are in love with the company for that idea, and then you have to change, which most companies do, then it's like, well, you know, I'm not really in love with um, uh, this new direction. Um, uh, so this happened with us in my first company. It was all about citizen journalism. And then we found that like building a platform for citizen journalism was really hard. And so we sort of pivoted to like social media and storytelling. And the people that joined the company for citizen journalism really had to sort of um, uh, be very introspective about whether or not they wanted to be part of a company that's, you know, just another social media company. Uh, whereas now, you know, Calvin and I, we, we understand, or, you know, we believe that um, it's, you know, you sort of like, you're, you're playing within a space, which for us is informal retail, um, but you're super flexible about how you plug into that space um, and who your initial customer is. Um, because essentially what this what we're what we're doing is it's an extended um, uh, version of the scientific method. That's essentially what we're doing, right? Which is like you have a hypothesis, you set a hypothesis, you set up an experiment, you get these results. 
and you just continuously iterate over and over to finding market demand essentially that you can meet. Um, and we, we try to not be too fixated um, on the type of customer and on the, um, uh, on, essentially on the type of problem essentially, um, because our vision, our idea might not be what the market needs. Um, we can iterate towards something once you have some momentum, uh, uh, but first we really have to find out what the market needs and where we fit in that market. And that just has to be led by the customer, um, uh, not led by us. And so if you think about the company, your startup as you know, an implementation of the scientific method, and you're just focusing on that process and continuously learning, it becomes a lot easier when you change your idea because it's just, an, you know, you know, that's, that's why you have the scientific method so that you can change your bad hypothesis to a better one. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I don't absolutely. Know, does that resonate? Yeah. Um, totally. I don't know. Yeah. No, and I think that that, um, I think that kind of comes down to another way of looking at it is that there are people who are very focused on, in, in, in terms of, uh, so each of us approach our work in a different way. Right. right. And, and of course there's a spectrum here, but if we're, if we're to try to create buckets within that spectrum, there are certainly people who they enjoy their work because they enjoy the ultimate impact or effect that that work mm -hmm. has. Uh, and then there's people that really enjoy their work because of the actual process or tasks that they're using. And right. so one thing that I see come up a lot is that some people are very driven that they want to, they don't care what problem they're going to solve. They just want to use this tool to solve a problem. Right. And that is a very different thing than somebody coming in, uh, which I think my philosophy matches much more closely to yours, which is here is a problem space that I want to find a human valuable solution within. Right. Um, and I'm very flexible to what the business therefore does. All I really care about is that it's generating a particular type of value and right. within a particular space. Um, and so I completely agree. And I think that becomes a very interesting piece as, as you develop and grow a company, especially within the co-founder and early employee relationships. Um, I guess I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but it's that importance of understanding where those fits align. Uh, right. Because exactly as you mentioned, where people had to do this deep introspection because they didn't want to necessarily leave the journalism space, right? right. And it's very hard to, to go from, I think I'm changing how we report truth of the world to mm -hmm. how we interact with one another. And people view those as very different, even though from a what you're building perspective, the chasm is not so large. Right. Um, right. So I, I think that's a really interesting kind of like set of perspectives of, of how do you build it? And then how do you recognize how that's going to push and pull on your team as you go through pivots and as you have different people with their own kind of value propositions for why they're at the company? Right. Um, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, I try to remain aware of it and making sure that you're baking in change as an innate part of this vehicle, this company that you're building. Um, I think it makes it a lot, a lot easier. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think if for, for taking an approach that is so, uh, kind of testing and seeking, and it's a very exploratory way to kind of build the business, right? We're going to try right. this and then we're going to try that. We're going to explore these different ways. Um, and I think something that, you know, taking that approach again, um, you know, to embrace launching again and to see it not as that the previous step didn't work, 
but that mm-hmm. you learned enough from the previous step that you could, that you know what to try next. And it's actually right. a form of success, but I don't know if people always see it as a, as a progression of success or if they instead interpret it as a succession of frustrations that they're struggling to overcome. Right. And, you know, it, and it's, it's so tough because, I mean, I think this is the right way. I mean, that's why I'm doing it, but I can see the pitfalls uh, because one of them is conviction. Um, you need conviction. Um, you know, to choose what you're doing, to sell what you're doing, not just to your employees, but to your investors who are like, what's up, and your advisors, and, uh, and, and future customers. Um, but if you have too much conviction, you're not willing to like change and learn, which is an innate part of that, of the process. And so, you know, I remember having a debate with one of our mentors. And, 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 you know, and he says, you know, he says, you know, I think, I think the problem might be this. And I was like, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe you're right. And he's like, Ian, you know, you know, two minutes ago, you were saying something that's completely the opposite. And he's like, well, where's the conviction? You know, you're supposed to know a lot more about the market than me and have, you know, the, the you know, confidence about what, what's true and what's not. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, and he was right. And he was right. And there, there are some things that um, over time you have to be like, uh, this is what I believe. This is the nature of, of this space. And, um, and this is how I'm going, I'm going to tackle it. So it's, it's, there's just like this thin line that you have to balance. Do you yeah. think that that for someone uh, such as yourself that values humility so highly, mm-hmm. do you think that sometimes finding conviction becomes that there's a little bit more tension there because maybe it, it borders on feeling like you're teetering into arrogance at times? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm still forming my um, ideas around humility. Um, I value intellectual humility, uh, which is, I think, mm-hmm. you know, different from behavioral humility, um, which I think a lot of the time, which my society values, behavioral humility. Um, and uh, and I, I actually don't, you know, don't, don't really agree with like behavioral humility because like sometimes I feel like you're making yourself small. But with regards to intellectual mm-hmm. humility, it's just reminding yourself, hey, you know, I don't know everything. Um, and it's important uh, that I remind myself that I don't know everything because if I'm focused on the outcome, um, I maximize my chances of reaching this outcome if I listen, I'm willing to learn from people, um, even if I believe uh, I'm right. And for that, it's actually been uh, pretty, pretty transformative, actually, in terms of how I, I run my teams, um, how I work with my brother, and of course, how I listen to uh, uh, my customers. Um, with regards to like arrogance uh, from conviction, um, you know, that's, a, that's, such a, that's a really, really great question. Um, I think, you know, there's just, just, there's just this, when you go try to sell, uh, and that's, I, all of my job is just selling, uh, you can kind of tell that like, if I don't even, if I don't sound confident here, this person won't trust me. And sales is trust at the mm-hmm. end of the day. And, um, yeah. and if I don't, um, you know, you know, put on my, my big boy voice and convince this person that this is, I believe completely, this is the idea that's going to change the world. Um, or change their 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 life. Um, they're just not gonna buy in. And so then, how do I get that confidence? Um, I try to make sure that I'm not selling snake oil, at least uh, to me. So I have to mm-hmm. believe completely that this thing is worth their time. And if I believe completely that this thing is worth their time, and so far Romani has been consistently, um, you know, actually, honestly, a lot of the time we have to do some social engineering in order to get in front of customers. I mean, Myrna, you asked before, okay. it's like, how do you how do you lead your past customers? 
through your pivot and how do you get new customers, uh, you know, especially with new customers, like right now in this, these big companies, we have to sort of, like me, I have to sort of negotiate my way through the guard at the front desk, the uh, the secretary of the head of sales and the head of sales and to get to the head of sales themselves. You know, I've had to enter companies without any contacts whatsoever um, and sit there and wait and, you know, beg for 10, 15 minutes. And if you don't believe completely that uh, what you're uh, going to tell this person is worth their time, I think it'd be, it's very difficult to um, hack social systems and to gain the attention of people you don't have like a uh, connection to. Um, I don't know. If, does mm-hmm. that make sense? that resonate yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah. uh i you've made some some really really great points uh i love your distinction between uh, you know social humility versus intellectual humility um and uh this is actually something that came up um in one of our prior episodes is like how to have lo- uh, strong convictions uh but hold them loosely you know like right. you you believe in your problem you believe that like you're on to the path to finding the right solution but you you kind of hold the that solution very loosely like what is it going to be i don't know uh we're figuring it out um, and one thing that you had mentioned, uh, that I had a question about was you had mentioned, you know, like, um, how long should you even be in, in that phase of like, Hey, we launched again. This is kind of our new pivot, our new product, our new service. Uh, we're, we're seeing how it goes. Uh, it's not working out the way we expected it to. Uh, how long do we kind of stay in that space before we're like, you know, okay, let's, jump onto, you know, let's maybe ramp down and, and go back to the drawing board and like figure out what's like our next pivot. Um, and, and, and yeah, I definitely want to talk about culture after that, but, but I just, I'm curious to hear like, uh, how long do you kind of stay in that space and when do you know when to kind of pull the plug? Yeah. Um, you know, that's such a great, great, great question. It's something I think about a lot and even talking to, you know, my, scientist friends you know that's something they think a lot too it's like how long is long enough for this um to run this experiment right um even you know even social sciences um etc and um there's no great answer it definitely depends on the space but let me tell you what convinced us to pivot from being a distributor um to being a tech enabled uh distributor and what it was was um a few things we didn't know. So let me explain our model real quick. Our model was we have traveling salespeople that would walk around uh, with smartphones and capture orders from merchants that we had registered in our system. And when they capture those orders, okay, those orders are sent into our <clears throat> uh, into, into our dispatch service, and then they're loaded into trucks, and those trucks go. And the big thing that we were trying to solve was sort of inefficiencies from these traveling salesmen going to places where um, there's no demand for that order. So we're like, if a truck is dispatched, it's going to deliver an order. Um, and there were some uncertainties, some unknowns when we were putting together that model that we couldn't know uh, without um, uh, without actually running that company, uh, without running that business. What uncertainty? For example, we didn't know the number of merchants a salesperson could visit per day on foot, Right. And we also didn't know how many successful orders. We didn't really know the throughput, how frequent merchants run out of uh, out of goods. And so we didn't really know, you know, how many successful orders, what percentage of, vis- of a merchant's visits 
um, could they get um, per day, which meant that we couldn't know what should be our expected revenue, some, uh, not merchant, sorry, salesperson. What's our expected revenue per salesperson per day? Um, and why does that matter? So when you're putting together your 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 model, right, and you have eight, you know, maybe ten percent um, margins, you have all these costs, but you don't really know what your top line is, and so you don't know what your total profit will be. And if each salesperson, if a salesperson can bring you, let's say, a thousand dollars a day uh, in in revenue, right, um, then you don't need that many salespeople in order to be, um, you know, uh, uh, profitable across the month. Uh, but if a salesperson brings you five hundred or three hundred uh, dollars a day, then you need quite a few uh, salespeople um, in order to be profitable per month, just to cover your fixed costs, which would be something like warehouse costs, for example, uh, rents and stuff like that. Um, and basically, mm -hmm. once we ran the business long enough, we managed to get baselines for expected output per salesperson per day per month. And then once you start extrapolating that, we realized that like this doesn't scale well. We're losing money now. And what do we need to do to get to be make, making money? Basically, these, each salesperson needs to be making double what they're making now. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, okay, mm -hmm. is there something about how we've um, configured our system that limits them? And it's like, no. So um, another thing that that heavily impacted our top line uh, was density. So if there are you know ten shops that are closely packed together, it takes a shorter amount of time for that person to visit all those ten shops than uh, than the um, than ten shops that are spread out. And so what's the average density of of these merchants in your city? You can't really know that until you start you know uh, you start running. Uh, the operation. So uh, for us, it's like once we had confidence that we know expected output, what's the, have we covered, uh, have we picked a sufficiently dense area? Have we negotiated the logistics prices uh, well enough? Like once we've tweaked all these variables, now you plug them into a model and say, what will it take for us to be profitable? And boom, it just became really clear. Once we had confidence over those variables we we're putting in, it became really clear, like it's almost impossible for us to be uh, profitable going forward. Now, what does that do? It allowed us to make pivot with confidence. That's probably our most confident pivot, um, which is the most recent one in March. It's like, oh, look at these numbers. It doesn't make sense. But also there are competitors in that space, competitors who've raised money. And you know, mm -hmm. and, and if you don't have that, we talked about conviction before, that belief um, that like, there's something fundamentally wrong with this approach. Sometimes you can feel like, how can these competitors be raising so much money? How can they be um, looking like they're growing? Um, <clears throat> uh, and we're and we're you know and, and and we think there's something fundamentally wrong. Like maybe they're doing something better. But if you if you can accurately baseline and you can explain to yourselves like why this is wrong, why this is wrong, why this is wrong, why these numbers don't make sense, uh, you can look at a competitor entering that space and you can be like, good luck, which is what you know. And you know, <laughs> and we're not touching that. And we're not touching that yeah. because of this, you know, uh, because of intellectual humility. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I have like, you know, way more ability than these people. What I'm going to do instead is try to make smarter decisions than they're making by making sure I have as much information as possible. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 so, so, so far, it's I think it's served us pretty well. Uh, you never know, but yeah. I think it's, you know, served us pretty well. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I love, uh, I love your, I love your approach. I think it's, uh, it's being very open to that, uh, you know, intellectual humility, which, which comes with, you know, 
that ability to be like, uh, I, I was wrong and it might look like I'm failing, but actually I'm, I'm not, I'm just, um, moving towards the right direction faster than everybody else. And it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of grit and I think a lot of perseverance to kind of go through that and to be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quote unquote failing, but, but it's all for a purpose and it's all for a greater purpose. And, um, yeah, this is, I, I, I loved hearing that story. That was really great. Um, yeah. uh, maybe to uh, double down a little bit, um, I'm thinking that you know you don't want to pivot until you understand why something is or isn't working. Like you deeply understand why. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, and for us, it was for once it was the unit uh, economics um, twice. Um, we st- we've gone through a recent evolution actually. Uh, before and um, and this is something that I've taught you know Brandon um, uh, shout out Brandon uh, and shout out Quebec um, yeah. uh, and uh, you know Brandon and I have you know uh, we've we had once had this conversation around dashboards and data and um, you know a lot of people are like you know we're gonna do this thing we're gonna capture this data we're gonna create this dashboard and we're gonna sell that dashboard and uh, Brandon has been burned by dashboards before and so he was the one that was like yeah you know people keep saying that but like you know, um, you know, data is not, you know, just because you have a dashboard doesn't mean people are willing to pay for it. Um, and I had, I learned that lesson from experience uh, as well. But um, what really mattered when, when we're trying to sort of just sell a dashboard, just sell data is understanding like people will say that's valuable and then you build it and they're not as excited as you think, but you have to understand why. Mm-hmm. Like, why isn't this person as excited as I think? Why did they tell me that they would be excited? Uh, and they're not lying, which has been really interesting. It's like this person's not lying to me. They're telling me what they believe, and 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 when they see this, oh, it's actually not as exciting as even they thought they were. And it's like, and the question is why. And a lot of the time, one one of the things that we learned was like, because people just because you have data doesn't mean you know what to do with it. And mm. actually, sometimes I'm giving you a dashboard. People feel like I'm giving them work because you have to look at this information, look at these trends, and then make make certain types of decisions um and you know for some people it's like well they're making decisions you know you know every day why don't they you know it's it feels like it'll help them but actually for a lot of people uh it doesn't um and so what one thing we've learned with romani is that like you know the data and the dashboards well there are two things with dashboards one is that the um i'm going on a tangent but actually i think this is important for any entrepreneurs out there the delta between the pain and the reward has to be thin. Um, one of the things, you know, especially these platforms where you have to do data entry, um, when somebody's entering data, it's painful, even for our app, right? So we have an app, all these, you know, we're calling it POS, but they basically have to enter the transaction data. That's a pain. Mm. And they, when, when, when will they see the reward for that pain? And if you're looking for a platform that aggregates and shows trends, well, it takes time for you to be able to show a trend. Right, you know, it could take a month or two months for a trend that, that that the company cares about, and that delay between the pain and the reward will cause people to stop using it or not use it that much, even mm-hmm. if they tell you, "Oh, oh, I value the data." And so, one of the things, for example, uh, that we had to do quickly in order to cut that time between pain and reward is daily summaries that we send to salespeople. So right now, all the salespeople on our platform get a text message summary of the products that they sold, the revenue, how close they are to their ta- target. 
Um, and that's just to, to, to give them a reward for that pain that they went through uh, in, in that day. Um, but, you know, for example, like that delta between pain and reward, you, you need to have some sort of like understanding of why things aren't working before you pivot. Because then you're just, or you're just spinning in circles. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. That was really great. That was, uh, I, th- yeah, that was really great. I, um, I haven't heard that before, the delta between the pain and the reward. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a quote on our Instagram Hell at yeah. some point. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that, the other thing that was interesting, uh, <laughs> and I won't go down this long, but um, talking about how dashboards don't always actually help people, it actually mm-hmm. reminds me of a phenomenon that you see in burnout in people, which is that um, so uh people doing this kind of psychology research have created these inventories as a way to try to quantify the extent to which someone is feeling burnt out, right? Like how demotivated are they? How much day-to-day life impact does it now have? And one of the strange things about burnout is that um, when, when you have people do these surveys and studies, you usually give the participant the option of whether or not to see their score. Um, and the reason why is because for some people to see their, that they're burned out makes them more burned out. Right. And there's, there are some people that when you tell them you're burned out, it makes them feel seen and recognized. And they're like, cool, now I can, it gives them a way to justify implementing things, you know, more time for themselves or, you know, uh, exercise or whatever their intervention might look like for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's definitely people that their burnout is coming from being overwhelmed and knowing that their burnout on top of it just gives them one more thing that they don't actually feel like they have control over. And so I, I almost wonder with the dashboards where for some people, it just doesn't seem to actually help them. I wonder right. if it's that they actually, even if they don't say it out loud, they are feeling overwhelmed by the decision-making and they don't really mm-hmm. know how to make those decisions. And so right. giving them more information just makes those decisions more confusing because they don't know how to make that unit, how to take that information in and make it actionable, which ironically is what the dashboard is trying to solve. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and making decisions is really hard, especially good decisions yes. where you have to deeply contemplate like all this information. It's really hard. And what I found is like, especially in informal industries. And so a lot of this stuff, you know, <clears throat> might be specific to sort of what we're doing, emerging markets. People would rather operate on instinct and use energy rather than sit back and think deeply. Um, uh, it's just easier to do. It's really, it's 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 really interesting. Um, and so you bring this dashboard, and someone's like, "Man, oh yeah, yeah, I love data." But but actually, it's a challenge. (laughs) Yeah, but now I have to think. But it's a shame, right? Because like in reality, using that dashboard would probably they probably would become a better intuitive decision maker if they actually Mm -hmm. calibrated themselves to real to to. non-subjective data or less right. subjective data. Right. Man, that's awesome. Well, I'm so excited to, to have gotten to to uh, hear about what you're working on. I've heard great things about you. Uh, and now I can certainly see why. Um, thank you. That, that's yeah. very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been really great. Um, you've touched on some really incredible stuff um, that, that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, which is, which is really nice. And you've brought, brought some really great insight from not just how to deal with a 
team when it comes to, you know, pivoting and launching again, but also, you know, company culture and how to find the right people who want to solve the problem and, and aren't, you know, hung up on, on the how, uh, and, um, some really interesting, you know, things to think about, like social and intellectual humility, as well as, um, you know, how people look at data and, um, and yeah, I've, I've learned a lot. I'm definitely really looking forward to re-listening to this episode. Um, and I'll have a lot of follow-up questions for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm already feeling the the pain of a sense of missed opportunity. Cause one, one thing that struck me at the beginning, uh, you were talking about with moving back to Tanzania and wanting to make sure that you really created a solution that was for the area, not just copy pasting an idea that somebody implemented in another region. Um, yeah. And I, I, I wish I had taken the opportunity to, to dig into this more because I actually think I have, I have two thoughts from that. One, I think that that's actually universally true. And I think it's mm. easier for others to see the problem or to see that, that challenge when you're physically moving geographically. But I think that there's mm. a very real reality that you, that, that, um, people often don't really think about taking it to the customer or of the customer as early in their process. Um, and the other thing is I think that this is something I've seen as a general trend, which is that most of the time, if you truly try to copy and paste geographically, it doesn't work anyway because the culture changes. And with that, the way that we interface changes, business changes, all of it changes. And I feel like we've seen this play out so many times and yet so many people still say, I'm going to, sometimes it's a copycat company and, and, and that does it. Sometimes yep. it's the, the core company itself and their attempts to, to scale. Um, right. But in both cases, when, whenever I see a direct copy paste, it's just almost a guaranteed disaster because that's just not how right. hum, human interaction is not universal in terms of the norms and standards and customs. Right. Um, can I, can I, I know we're wrapping up, but can I comment on that? Um, of course. Yeah, totally. Have you have, have, have you heard of the Chesterton's uh, fence fallacy? No. Okay, so um, it's something my brother and I, you know, um, we think about a lot and we remind ourselves a lot. Which essentially, it's like the way the story goes is that you're driving down a road and uh, you see this fence that's built across uh, uh, the road. And um, your initial instinct is like, why is this fence, you know, built a, a, across the road? And basically, the um, the adage, the proverb is just that before you move that fence, you need to understand why it's there, because there might yeah. be a deep reason why that fence is there that you just don't know. It's unobvious. It's not obvious. Um, and it's called the mm-hmm. Chesterton fence. I think it's called the, the Chesterton fence fallacy. And my brother and I remind ourselves of this all the time. Why is that? Um, I remember having a conversation with Michael Seibel, probably the, the second conversation with Michael Seibel, and where he said, you know, um, he said, um, he said, he said, tell me how the world works today for your customers. Um, and I said, he's like, what problem are you solving? And I said, well, right now, our merchants, um, when they run out of inventory, what they have to do is close the shop, go to a wholesaler, buy inventory and come back and they're losing sales. Um, and then Michael goes, so? no one had ever asked me so because it's because that problem seems so obvious it's like well oh well they're they're they're, they're losing revenue etc it's like well do they value the convenience of you delivering to them and actually they, mm, they, right. they didn't they didn't 
and he's and he he said on this rant, he said he's like, you know, all these people that go over there and you know, he you know, people go there and they're like they see the world um as it is and they're like, oh, the world should be this way. And and Michael's like, well, why should the world change? Maybe this is the optimal solution for this problem. And um uh and, and he was right completely. And um and my brother and I you know, talked about it and and really right now we don't make this we don't we don't make decisions without understanding. You have to understand why the world is as it is first before you go change it because you might be thinking you're bringing a solution and you're not and that includes like when you go to another market like an emerging market like why do they do things this way mm -hmm. right um and here mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons a lot of it's like access to work and capital um uh it's storage space there are all these different reasons to why our market is fragmented why it's uh the other thing actually is that informal operations are cheaper than formalized operations. Like if you imagine a formal company, um, you know, you have, you know, you're paying uh, taxes directly, you have all these employees, you have, you know, might have all these vehicles, all these assets that you're paying for, your costs are really low, but informal economies, you know, like it's my shop, I'm running it, my son's, uh, you know, or my nephew is the one that's manning it when I'm not there. And so you can think about my operating, my operating costs are near zero. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so anyway, and so, you know, the big thing is, is, you know, to always remember, like, before you start bringing the, building the Amazon of Africa or the, you know, Uber for, um, you know, I don't know, wherever, right? Think first, it's like, why do they do things the way that they do first? And then it's mm -hmm. like, what has changed that enables me to do it differently? Um, and that's mm -hmm. yeah. intellectual humility. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's I love that cool. so much. Yeah. Thank yeah. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been so great. Um, and, and like Kennedy said, you know, building businesses that are copy and paste in, in other regions is like a whole other episode topic. So uh, yeah. we might come back and, and ask you to come back on. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Season I, I two. Hope. Season two is being planned. <laughs> yeah. So I hope oh, you yeah. enjoyed this. We really did. Yeah. yeah thank you. Awesome. Well, well, we'll talk to you soon. Have a, I know it's a, about almost 9 p.m. in Tanzania right now. Um, so have a great night. Um, say hello to Calvin and uh, can't wait to talk to you soon. I will. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you, Kennedy. Great to meet you. Uh, Hope yeah, to meet you, you in person nice uh, sooner than later. Yeah. <laughs> the world will reopen someday. <laughs> <laughs>